and talking to our friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. This is an all-Hellboy podcast. We're reading all the Hellboy comics, and every week we interact with our amazing listeners. Here's Danielle to tell you all about it. The fuck I will. Ryan Yule's going to tell you all about it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it's an all-Hellboy book club podcast, and we're reading all the Hellboy comics and also EPRD and other comics from the pages of hellboy and what you're going to do is you're going to read the comic and then you're going to listen to the show and you're we're going to talk about it and then you're going to tell us what you think about it and and because it's a book club and friendship and you're also if you have thoughts you can leave us uh, hey you damn guys and that's on social nice. media and uh back to you john oh that was amazing you really did back to you john that was great you that did a good perfect. job with i'm that, gonna make man. you do that every time <laughs> Ryan Yule. Uh-huh. Ryan Yule. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Book club member. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love it. That's yet another clip from our debriefing episode when we had Ryan on. Thank you so much, Ryan. Yes. First of all, getting into this episode, I just want to give mega, mega thanks and appreciation to Kevin Hanna and Jim Dimonacos for hanging out with us last week. That was so awesome. Was super fun. Yeah, that was great. The Mike Manila documentary, Drawing Monsters, continues to build steam on Kickstarter they recently announced now it's going to be a two-disc Blu-ray with over three hours nice. of additional footage. Nice. Yeah, I love yeah. me some additional footage. Yeah, the postcard tier keeps going up. Now they've added a print to the portfolio and a postcard by Matt Smith, nice. which is amazing. I'm really excited for that. So I actually, like I talked about in the Kickstarter episode, I went and actually added an extra t-shirt and an extra postcard set to my pledge. Um, get the most out of my pledge. You know, this stuff is going to be going for tons afterwards, and people are going to be like, oh, I missed out, and I didn't get this, and I didn't get that. And you could be like, hey, I have an extra postcard set. I'll sell it to you for the regular price because I'm a stand-up guy, yeah. and that's what people do. Yes, instead of trying to mark it up for however much you see that shit going for. Yeah, so thanks again, Kevin and Jim. I was so glad that we were able to talk to them, and we definitely want to get them back on the show soon. Yes, that was fun. Yes, that would be great. Yeah, and I had so much fun. I want to do more interviews now. Let's make that happen. You know what I mean? So maybe we'll start reaching out to some more people. I did think it was interesting that they were like, oh, what? We're not going to read a book together? I thought this was a book club. I thought that was cute. I was like, oh, do you want to do that? I mean, we can. We will totally do that with them. So that would be great. It might be cool to have them on to talk about some of the short stories that we've already discussed since that was a a good topic of conversation in our episode. So, yeah, we'll see what we can do with that. Maybe we could do, like, like reader favorite, like, top three short stories. Oh, I love that <laughs> idea, Aubrey. That's great. We could get the survey going or something like that. Good stuff. All right, and now we're going to go on to our listener feedback. Hey, you damn guys from Caleb Kennedy. Hey, Caleb Kennedy. Book club member. That's right. Yeah, he said, I just recently decided to reread my Hellboy collection, and I discovered your podcast in the process. It's been wonderful getting to listen in on your discussions with every story fresh in my mind. I'm preparing to move down to Texas from Oregon, so I'm in a weird limbo state that alternates between frenzied scrambling and anxious boredom. (laughs) And your podcast has helped keep me feeling somewhat balanced. Hey, hit us up here in Texas, man. 
Anyway. Yeah. Something kind of funny, I just recently wrapped up The Rise of the Black Flame and your episode on it. All hope and eclipse by Cradle of Filth kept pumping in my head. I couldn't say why, because I haven't listened to it in years, but the story seemed to pull it up from my memory banks. I went to go look for the album on YouTube called Bittersweets to Succubi and discovered to my shock that one of the tracks on the album is called The Black Goddess Rises. It's- oh, nice. Is this the Black Goddess sending me a subtle message through the cosmic fabric that I'm destined to be the next Black Flame? I guess I'll have to let you know in the next episode. I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, that's exactly what that means. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. You better watch out for Matt's track, Yeah, bun. I don't know about that. He also said, thanks for all you do. I look forward to the wild stories ahead, Kayla. What do we do? We don't, I mean, we're just sitting around jabbering and <laughs> We're just being friends. On. Yeah. Thank you, Caleb. Oh, yeah. I hope to hear from you again soon. We have a Hey You Damn Guys from Andrew Adair. Andrew Adair. Book club member. Yeah. And Andrew Adair says, uh, Witchfinder and collective nouns in one episode. <laughs> this is the kind of content you simply can't find anywhere else. I had to look up an encyclopedia of collective nouns I had. Excellent. I'm glad you have this. Crows can be hovers or murders. Oh. Uh, ravens can be an Ooh. unkindness. Which I just gotta I gotta interject here because like crows and ravens are awesome, and I don't know why they're calling groups of crows and ravens murders and unkindnesses when they're like fantastic birds. Yeah. These are the best people you're gonna meet. <laughs> they're anyway. smart. Yeah, they're smart maybe, and they're maybe, awesome. Maybe the the names were made up by people the birds shunned, and they're like, well, fuck yeah, the bird. exactly. <laughs> and it's like, well, they shunned you for a reason. You're probably a crap person because to nice people. <laughs> They treat you like family. They're very social uh, birds. You know, they bring very, you gifts and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're very social animals, and they they live in these social, you know, groups, and and they're awesome. I don't know why anyone would call them unkindnesses and stuff and murders and whatever. Anyway, I've also heard that if you're if you're mean to them, they'll let all the other birds know. Yeah, that, yeah. which as they should, <laughs> you know. That's anyway. Hey, any uh, Andrew Adair continues. Uh, goldfinches are a charm. Aww. Chickens can be a battery, a flock, or a peep. Adorable. Ducks can be a brood, column, knob, or paddling. A knob of ducks. Yeah. Eagles can be a convocation. Mm. Peacocks, an ostentation. (laughs) Nothing listed for a group of witch finders, but as for Rasputin, the collective of Rasputins would be an abominable sight of monks. (laughs) Excellent. Pretty good. Keep up the good work. Wishing you Texans well in these tough times. Andrew Adair. Ah, oh, yeah. thank you, Andrew. Club Great job. Thank you. That's right. And I got a couple to add on there because we get a lot of uh, friendly visitors in our backyard a lot. And um, I have to, every time I get a visitor, I'm like, oh, who's this guy? Oh, I got to look this guy up and, you know, figure out uh, their collective noun. And so we had some kinglets okay. in the backyard the other day. Apparently a group of kinglets has a couple different collective noun names, a castle, a court, or a dynasty. That's wow, so cute. all regal names. Yes, That's very. Yeah, well, the kinglets. Oh, and I so get apparently it now. a group of we, I'm sat, dumb. we had <laughs> we had some cedar wax wings in the yard the other day. Apparently, a group of wax wings can be called a museum of wax wings. Interesting. That's neat. Uh, we had some rose okay. finches at the huh. feeder. Every once in a while, some rose finches. Apparently, a group of finches can be called a charm. So much like the gold finches oh, that Andrew finches Adair, yeah. Like that, so yeah. Andrew Adair pointed out that some finches can be called a charm. That's excellent. Uh, we have we have a lot of woodpeckers back there visiting. So apparently the collective noun for woodpeckers is a drumming of woodpeckers. Nice. Love it, yeah. I love that. Drumming of woodpeckers. There's that's, a gr- that's fitting. Yeah, it is, right? <laughs> it's great. There's uh we we see big groups of robins around the neighborhood, like fifty or so robins at a time. Adorable. 
running around looking for bugs and worms and stuff in the grass. And apparently a collective noun for robins is a round of robins. Oh, that Amazing. makes sense. So uh, we will continue the collective noun corner <laughs> because we love that. And if you have some interesting <laughs> collective nouns that you like, please go ahead and write in. Love it. And also, if you have made up a hilarious collective noun <laughs> for witch finders or Rasputins. I like the one Andrew Dare came up came up with. I like uh, the co- the collective noun for Rasputins as an abominable side of monks. That's fantastic. So, yeah. Awesome. Good job there. Uh, we also got a Hey You Damn Guys from Brian Levy. Did we? Brian Levy. Book club member. Aw, oh, man. Witch finder. So good. Gates of Heaven is very interesting to me. If you're the kind of reader who just wants lore, density, and big moments, it doesn't really do a lot other than establish how Ed got his hands on the dagger and how he acquired the flying machine thing from the drowning. However, it sets the foundation for what a more frequent Witchfinder series could be. We now have a crew. We have gadget-filled home base of sorts. It's a great place for a procedural to orbit around. I don't think that's necessarily the direction they're going to take the series, but the ground has been laid. Nice. Nice. He goes on to say, also, holy shit, Disraeli. I love how much freedom there is within the Mugnolaverse for artists to do what they do. There's obviously some visual continuity that they have to adhere to. It doesn't seem like any artist is ever being pushed to rein in on their style, other than the inky shadows and the occasional black panels of silence. There aren't too many uh, marks that the illustrations in a Mignola-related comic has to hit, which gives us a great opportunity to see so many artists do so much cool stuff. We really get spoiled rotten with these artists we're exposed to as a Hellboy fan. Anyway, hope you're all well. Brian Levy. Nice. Thank you, Brian. Nice. Yeah, I love that. Um, they really, I, it seems like they do give them a lot of freedom. And I think that you see that, you definitely see that in this series that we're going to discuss today because there are just pages that are just art. And I think in the Disraeli and Michelle Madsen, that was like, they really gave some them some freedom to do some really wacky, out there, psychedelic stuff, which was awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah, I lo- I love that art uh, when it got into the the bright colors and the man, it was so amazing. But I also like how uh, he talks about how like he's assembled a team and like you know he's got the gadgets and he's got like you know his his uh, supporting characters and all. Yeah, I- I'm really starting to really kind of enjoy the Witchfinder world. As yeah, it, as it were, they have kind of set it up as kind of like a procedural at this point. I like that. I like to think of it like that, especially since we got the theme song by Andrew Adair, right? All right, we had some more feedback on our Witchfinder The Gates of Heaven episode. Mark Tweedell, he said, since you might be interested, you know, Mark Tweedell did that awesome uh, Victorian voices on the intro yeah. uh, last Man, time. that was great. He said, a Senwick is a weak, chinwag a chat, giggle mug a smiling face, chuckaboo close friend, bang up on the elephant, perfect complete. I knew chinwag. Hinkle pink, old timey <laughs> slang created by Danielle. That's it, your it, that, that's your signature <laughs> phrase. Is it? I think you made that up on one of the Witchfinder episodes. Did I? And then Andrew Adair cut it into the very end of the Witchfinder theme. So when if you listen to his I... theme all the way to the very end, wow. you you hear your voice go, "That's not quite my hinkle pink." I that is so great. <laughs> uh, well, I'm impressed with your creativity and also impressed with my inability to remember anything I do or say ever. We also had some talk with Mark about different kinds of meals. Remember we were talking about that for a while? He said yes. the 11 meals of the day. Oh, yeah. Breakfast. Second breakfast. Yeah. Morning tea. Brunch. Yes. 11 C's. Lunch. 11 C's is good stuff. Smoko. Afternoon tea. Dinner. Also called tea. Yeah. Supper. 
Midnight snack. Nice. Very important. Yeah. Those are all the I, uh, those are all the meals. Good stuff. Approve all those. Meals. I eat all of those meals. <laughs> I eat all of those meals. I'll get two of them in there. <laughs> he said, uh, "I also love the way this arc teases a bunch of characters that could potentially be part of the Silver Lantern Club someday." So, Rise of the Black Flame introduced the is Silver Lantern Club. We learned that Ed Gray and Sarah Jewell are both part of that club. So. You know, they're kind of building on stuff that hasn't quite happened yet in the Witchfinders series, which is very cool. We also heard from Drew Campbell. Drew Campbell. Book club member. Yeah. He said, so you referred to Setabera and Epke Vrooman, and I know you know this, but you didn't explicitly say it, so my annoying nerd mind won't let me move on without pointing out that Vrooman was just the host body for Setubera. so essentially it's the same guy. Yes, I did forget to mention that, but like... No, yes, in book club, you chime in. That's yes, great. that's the it. whole idea is... It's really interesting when you think about it, because as Sadubera, he was a jerk to Panya, remember? Yeah. He like yelled at, at her as a little girl. Then she's going to give Ed Gray the knife so he can eventually kill that guy's reincarnated version. Yes. Which is like yeah. a weird revenge in a way, right? Or something like that. Whether she knew that or not. But it's just fun to think about. Well, I'm pretty sure she does. Ponya knows how to play that long con. Right. That's true. <laughs> we were also talking about Struth. The exclamation. Drew said it's short for God's truth, just as Zounds is short for God's wounds. Did we talk about that already? Is it? I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Mark Tweedell said Struth is very common in Australia, right up there with Crikey. I, I didn't know that. That's great. That's mm. good to know. Very cool. Jerry Turnbull said... Hey, Jerry Turnbull. Book club member. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember in the Witchfinder series, Gates of Heaven, when Grey met Ponya. She took him in this room, and there was this guy all hooked up with all these devices, and he had this stuff on his eyes, and he was trying to figure out the secret history of the world. So Jerry Turnbull yes. said, William Bright, that was the guy's name, spent two years telling Amelia Dunn the true secret history of the world. I've been fascinated by Amelia since the entry in The Companion, and I hope her story is told one day. So they've hinted at Amelia Dunn in the secret history, okay. true secret history, but that story's never actually been told yet. Yeah. So, yeah, I would oh. love to see that. And he said, oh, and Simon Broom is Trevor's uncle. Winky face. Yeah, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Excellent. Good, good, good. I'm, no, it's, thank you for that. I'm glad to know that. We were like, who's this guy? He's got the same last name as the main character in the Hellboy <laughs> stories. So who's this guy? So thank you. Yeah. Hayden Orr said. Hayden Orr. Book club member. That's right. He said, great episode, you damn guys. And Mark Tweedell cameo. The series was so good. The art, the story, so cool. It made me curious, though. Are these gates of heaven that Sinclair opens related to the weird frog heaven that Johan encounters in War on Frogs? Ah. And also possibly the kingdom of heaven that Gunter Ice tries to open in BPRD the Dead okay. before he's possessed by the Seraph. Remember, he turns into yeah. like a inside-out yeah. butterfly thing, and he's calling it like heaven. The frog heaven and Sinclair's heaven seem to share a similar visual look with huge tears opening in the sky with a crazy psychedelic mess of colors and horrible creatures coming out of them. Nice. And all three share a theme of mutating part of the Plague of Frogs. Ice gets possessed and mutated into a seraphim, and the frog heaven is for the frog monsters who were once human. I find it interesting that as much as we have seen of hell and other pagan gods, we haven't really seen a whole lot of information about heaven or angels other than the few watchers we know of. But I'd imagine just as the Fallen Watchers became demons or earthly gods and spawned lesser demons and the like, surely the Watchers who stayed with God created lesser angels? I don't know. 
Maybe at some point we'll get more information in a miniseries down the line. Mm. Yeah, I love that he pointed that out. I totally didn't draw those parallels, but there is that overarching theme of like right. the gates of heaven, but it's like some weird yeah. body horror psychedelic thing. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Huh. Thanks for pointing that out, Hayden. All right, and now we're going to go on to our book club episode for the week. Okay, then. This week we're talking about Witchfinder. Witchfinder. Witchfinder The Reign of Darkness is a five-issue miniseries. We're reading issues one and two today, which were published in November and December 2019. Written by Mignola and Chris Robertson. Art by Christopher Mitten. Colors by Michelle Madsen. Letters by Clem Robbins. And edited by Katie O'Brien. And we got to talk about this trade paperback cover by Julian Tatino Tedesco. This cover is so cool, like... When the trade came out, I wanted to buy it just because this cover is so amazing. And I was like, wait a minute, I haven't read the other ones. I probably, I think I'm going to wait till the omnibus sure, comes out. Right. But like, this cover yeah. alone just makes you intrigued into what this story is going to be. Um, I really enjoy that. Yeah, it's a really stunning cover. Yeah, I love all these little crows. I'm like, what are all these little crows? Or Are they crows or ravens? They seem like ravens. Okay. Like, how are they going to factor They're in the story? They're pretty big. Well, we've been talking about ravens a lot because yeah. there's the Tower of London ravens, yeah. right? And the Raven Master and all that we mentioned on some of the previous Witchfinder right. stories. So maybe this builds on that. They seem to have some uh, extra fluffies and they seem bigger. Okay. Crows are typically a little bit smaller than that and have less fluffies. Nice. Okay. And then we have the uh, issue one cover yeah. by Christopher Mitten and Michelle Madsen. It's a great cover, and um, this is ridiculous, but I just want to point out really quickly, if you look at the bird that is to the right-hand uh, side of this page, you can see, if you look really closely on the um, the wing that's here in the foreground, you can see the little thumb feather. Oh, yeah. That's what I call it. I mean, it's not called that, obviously, but that's what we call it. We have two birds here in the house and you know you know they molt and everything and you can find those little thumb feathers and i think they're so interesting because they're they're shaped like a wing feather but they're so small right and it's just so anyway i just like to have an artist actually draw that feather as the bird is in flight is so interesting like they really studied birds yeah when they drew this bird because that that little thumb feather is there and i thought that was so interesting all the flight feathers look correct and it's just you can tell immediately when a bird is not drawn correctly so i really appreciate this it's really nice nice good stuff the tails all fanned out and everything and yeah anyway it's good stuff so i i like this and i like the ominous red moon here in the background it's just a little tiny sliver of a crescent moon we're used to seeing a lot of like full moons right so that's kind of interesting and uh yeah so i'm excited to get into it very good also colors i know we talk about that a lot but this is um a good blend of creators of of um artists and colorists and letterers and all that yes i'm excited i love it i love this cover you know the uh the red and the griminess of it kind of really kind of sets the mood for what's about to go on in the story that we're about to read Absolutely. And we open in February 1889, a full five years after Gates of Heaven, the story we read last time. Yet we open with a reference to that story. How could we forget Aldous the name? Midden Gods yeah. Sinclair. <laughs> Middle Witch. Yeah. 
middle something or other. This page is pretty outstanding, though. Uh, I really like how Ed Gray is talking to the viewer, and he's moving towards them. The color's getting brighter as he moves into the frame, and we see like he's approaching a flame because it's like reflected in his eyes or something like that. It's just a very artful way, I think, of it's conveying like a bunch of information. It's it's mostly dialogue, but um, it really draws you in. I'm digging it. And Gray is saying, just like Sinclair, he's in another situation that may not seem supernatural at first, but it is. In this case, Gray suspects ritual sacrifices. And he's talking to someone. This is 1889, but then we flash back another year to 1888. So it's like there's a framing device. You know what I mean? Well, it's only like three months back because it's February 89 and then we flash back to November 88. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. But I think it's interesting. Like, we don't know who he's talking to. What is the fire that he's looking at? Like, yeah. that's kind of a, a mystery that we're going to kind of circle back around to, I imagine, in the later oh. issues. I'm assuming it's the queen. That's my guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> the guy with the chops is like, look, I uh, I don't know about this little young lady here. I don't know if you should be dragging her out here. Incredible. Yeah, so we're in Spitalfields where they're having this investigation and Gray, he sticks up for her. He's, yeah, he's like, like, Mrs. Goat is made of Cerner stuff, not like her other colleagues. And she goes, whinging little sods. You think they'd never seen a dead body before? And we reveal Lewis and Manley, right? They got all grossed out, I guess, on a previous investigation. <laughs> we see one of them throwing and up back there. She's just like, yeah, I mean, you'd think they'd never seen a dead Like she's, she's so used to it and whatever. Great. And so this guy's got it totally backwards here. I love it. I don't think it's that they were throwing it because of the dead body. I think it's the severity of the wounds and the damage that was done to the body that the, made them the murder. Right, but the right. comedy is yeah. in the fact that this guy is like, oh, I don't know oh, yeah, if no. he can handle it if these two guys. And she's like, but I work around corpses a lot, so I see mutilations from time yeah. to time, and it's fine. And so I think that that's what that is. These are two guys who also, like, you would think that they would be Right, Fine, but they, they would weren't. be used anyway, to this kind of yeah. stuff. They like do autopsies yeah, and stuff, exactly. right? <laughs> Gray is shown the crime scene, and it's pretty grisly, right? A mutilated body of a woman. Gray looks under the bed and sees some sort of sigil on the floor. There's also lines of blood along the wall. And Gray exits the scene. He tells Miss Go that he's seen all he has to. Gray reports that he believes there are clear signs of an arcane rite. There was a summoning circle under the bed. A magic circle or a circle of space marked out by practitioners of some branch of ritual magic, which they generally believe will contain energy and form a sacred space or will provide them a sort of magical protection or both. It may be physically marked, drawn in a material like salt or chalk, or merely visualized. The Sumerians called the practice of using ritual circles Zisuru. Gray says he doesn't know what they were conjuring up, but he will put a stop to it. And I love this panel, right, as he wags his finger. Yeah, um, I always stuff. like a good dynamic. finger wagging out of Ed Gray. But <laughs> yeah, yeah t- the, the art is so incredible. I love the work that Michelle Madsen is doing. Um, it's interesting because she gets a lot of detail out of what seems to be some very loosey-goosey lines. That's what I was just going to say. Oh, is, sorry. I didn't mean to take the no, word. No, no. I know. I, I love that we're on the right wavelength yeah. here because Mitten is so loose. Yeah. And I think, like, not to say that it's messy, but no, no, I think no. that it would be very challenging to 
piece out what color everything is supposed to be. It's does it's, that make sense? Yeah. What I'm saying? No, it's they they make a good team, and it's um, it's like you said, like it's it seems when you look at the individual lines, you're like, this is just very. I feel like Lucy Goosey is the only way I can describe it, but it's very um, not anything close up. And then when you t- you know take a st- you, when you look at it as it's meant to be viewed as a whole panel or a whole page, the composition is great. Everything's it's, defined. It's very well. Yeah, you can. I mean, obviously, it's his his coat and this girl's skirt and this other man's jacket, the horses and the reins and everything. It looks fantastic. You know, it's only when you get up really close that you're like, these are just everywhere. So I I really love the freedom with which the line art is expressed yeah. and i love like you said the way the colorist comes in and is able to uh communicate as it were yeah. with the line art and um i'm i'm fascinated with that i'm really interested in that and in a way we talk about how mignola developed his own style and really sure. revolutionized his style and i kind of feel like this about like this is just kind of like this person has come so far with their own style that they're able to just kind of do that organic very it's kind of it's kind of fast and loose yeah, yeah but it's also very it's clearly he's wearing a, a jacket and a and a vest <laughs> i mean but it's just i don't know how to describe it but i um i'm really impressed with the fact that it can be both loose and defined right at the same time yeah i like I, it I, when ross was talking about his his uh his wheel that he made for all the artists yeah. I, I, I'd, yes. I'd be interested i need to go back and see where he put mitten but yeah. It is kind of detailed and specific, but it's also It looks really like he just loo- ran his pen around, but it looks like a exactly where everything is supposed to be. Yeah. If any line were off slightly, it would look terrible and sloppy and messy and lazy, but it's not. Yeah. And so this artist knows exactly where to put the lines and the colorist knows exactly where to put the color and it's just very impressive. Um I, I really like it. I like it a lot. I think it's very um, obviously takes a lot of skill and takes a lot of time to get there. Yeah, yeah. To get to a point where you can just put one or two lines, you can tell like this is a whole line. If you go to the next page and you see this first panel and you look really closely at these birds, you can tell that the lo- the lines that make the tail feathers is just like one line oh, that was done okay, very quickly. Yeah. But it takes so many years to get to that point to make it look like. Indivit- when you take a step back and cool. look at the page the way it's yeah, meant to be viewed, when you read it the way it's supposed to be read as a panel as part of a page, it looks very natural and normal, like a bird, like, a oh, this artist really knows how to draw a bird, and they do. And so I don't really know how to describe that. Like, it's not sloppy at all. It's yeah. it's obviously very purposeful, but it's very yeah. organic. I don't know. It's yeah, just yeah. very, he just draws a line, and it's all of a sudden a bird. <laughs> It's impressive. It probably takes a long time to be able to do that and to be able to do it instinctually. Cool. And so yeah. I'm really into this style. I really like it a lot. I'm enjoying it. A month passes and we're at Gray's place. Like Danielle said, we see the owls flying over. Look at this panel here. This one right here. This Is it the third panel uh-huh. in the page? Look at the third panel on the page. This book, is it the just a face of an owl? Right, I was going to say that. What is that weird book? This, the cover of this book, someone has drawn or sculpted the face of an owl onto this book, and I want to read yeah, that book. what is that? That's fantastic. Well, have we seen that before? The, the book, the first thing I saw, the first thing I thought of when I saw it was like, is that the Necronomicon? I was like, no, wait, it's an owl. So maybe it's the Owl Book of the Dead. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Or just have a, a, lot like a of book of owl magic. Yeah. I mean, we see owls is in the beginning like panel. An, they're like an owl There's, god or goddess. That well, it's weird because, like, in the last and... in the last story that we had, Christopher Mitten, Saturn Returns, yep. there were snow owls in that one yep. too. And we were like, "What do the owls mean?" Yeah, 
and and they were just kind of like in the story yeah. and then in this one there is also owls it's like does he just like owls or does it mean something i feel like they're connected it somehow something. Something. <laughs> old bailey comes in and he says ed gray has visitors and gray's like oh who could be calling at this hour of the ah splendid <laughs> It's Simon Broom and Honora Grant. Oh, shit. I don't know if we talked about this before, but Simon Broom is Trevor Broom's uncle. He was pre- featured prominently in Rasputin, Voice of the Dragon. Have we mentioned that before? Who gave us that news? Mm-hmm. Wait, so <laughs> so it, it's it's Trevor Broom's nephew, what you said, right? <laughs> there you go. That's, I, think I think somebody seven. mentioned that. I can't remember who mentioned that. <laughs> somebody did. I know somebody said that. And do my eyes deceive me, or is Ed Gray actually happy to see somebody? Yeah, I know. Does he actually seem to have a positive affect or something right now? Such a I weird mean, that, thing. That was just like I saw that. I was like, "Whoa, Ed's he's such a, a grumpy Ed. Gus." <laughs> he's he's actually glad to see people. <laughs> yeah, but Broom and Grant don't have good news. The investigation has hit a dead end. Broom mentions that the only person who fit. Gray's profile with asocial tendencies and a background in the occult was a crank spiritualist, but he lacked the requisite strength and anatomic experience. And Grant mentions the guy Asquith. He looked like he'd topple over in a breeze, but Gray knows who he's talking about. He recognizes the name, Gordon Asquith. So, of course, I had to look for that. I couldn't really find any references to that. There is an Earl of Oxford who was named Asquith, as well as a famous poet. But I don't think they're referencing any of those here. Coincidentally, the poet Asquith was married to a Lady Cynthia, which is also a Hellboy reference. Mm, I was like, okay. hmm, maybe that means something. But probably not. I'm really enjoying this art style. I know I just got done talking about that, but just the... Um, Everything you know, in the background, all the little details yeah, in the study. That as well, but also the, the, the characters themselves, like their body language and the lines on someone's shirt the way that their arm is moving and the way that they're posed it's not just a pose like it's very dynamic and it's um fluid and it's it's good stuff it's almost as though the line art style itself is informing the way that i'm reading the body language and the movement of the story itself and the storytelling like like it's informing the storytelling style it's not just the visual style it's really um i'm liking it a lot yeah I would totally agree with that. Gray remembers Asquith from stopping him at Buckingham Palace, where he was trying to conjure a demon. (laughs) Buckingham Palace is a London residence and administrative headquarters of the monarch of the UK. And so we see that interaction there, um, but Asquith got away before he could be apprehended. Wait, so we haven't seen this before? I thought this was like a flashback to a story we had already seen. I don't think so. I don't think we've seen it, but if we have, I guess listeners let us know. Oh, he'll um, let us know. <laughs> but he also mentions that it was during their Majesty's Golden Jubilee. That's the 50th anniversary. Okay. So okay. we know that under Grey, his queen was ruled for 63 years. So this that lines up with the historical fiction, right? Right on. And Grey, he starts to get himself all worked up the more he thinks about it and says, <laughs> although Asquith is unimposing, he's still a dangerous delusional egotist. We haven't a moment to lose. Grabbing his jacket. Yeah, he starts getting ready to go. He's pumped. To g- he's got his team with him. <laughs> he's grabbing his coat. Yeah, I know. Let's go. But Broom and Grant aren't coming. Grant says they have their own research and matters to attend to. They've spent a lot of time chasing rumors and shadows with Ed Gray, but they have to get back to their own lives. 
This really bummed me out. Yeah, man. Because when they showed up, I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to get Broom, Grant, and Ed Gray. This This is going to be awesome. And then they're like, we're leaving. Bye. Bye. I was like, oh, man. I was really bummed to see them back again. And I think Ed Gray's bummed, too, but he doesn't want to show it. Right. He's like, oh, okay. I I see. He's like, Uh, give me the address, and I'll get the police, and they'll help me. Like, I almost feel like he's almost like, oh, well, I can still do this without you. Thought we were getting a gang together. Yeah. Aw, I feel bad for him. We cut over to Islington. This is a district in Greater London, England, and part of the London Borough of Islington. The police, Ms. Goad and Gray, investigate apartment 12. Gray's giving the police orders to batter down the door. Um, but before we go on, I, again, we got to mention, I, I think the work here on these following pages is incredible, yeah. again, with Madsen and and Mitten, the amount of detail and colors and just like they really give a lot of life to this um, expressive apartment building or yeah. whatever but uh we go into the action here i love this moment because they're about to batter down the door in apartment 12 and as gray is talking to the police like mid-sentence he's like the devil he looks across the street and he sees asquith at the other apartment 12 asquith sees him and he's like of all the there he is there he is and they all start running after him yeah this moment is amazing, and there's an excellent chase through Victorian London, and the colors and the arches really shine here. It's outstanding. As Gray is like running around, I love how he jumps over this horse carriage and everything to get at the guy. Just Man, stuff it's, it's, flying everywhere. All the debris and everything. It's just it's stellar work. This artist pages. pulls a Mignola here in this panel here, where it's just this, it, it isn't anything. It's just shapes, but you can tell exactly what it is, and I love that. Which panel? Oh, the guy's yeah, running yeah, away yeah. into the distance, and it's it reminds me of when you were pointing out the guy floating through the air. Yeah. You know, kind exactly. of a deal. I love yeah. that. I think that's fantastic. It takes a lot of skill yes. to be able to do that. But you see it. You see the trench coat flowing behind him yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah. This is this poor confused, this poor confused horse. It's just like, <laughs> man, I'm just trying to like do my job over here and... Running around and yeah, so on, the man. art is really good as they move through and give chase. Ultimately, Asquith is tackled. The him. police get him, and Gray says that they're going to search Asquith's flat. But it's like they we have this page of all this chaos ensuing. Unhand me. And then, uh, and then as Gray walks away, like Gray is just—he's so single-minded. Yeah, in we're his gonna logic. go look at this guy's. He's like, we're going place. to the flat, and everyone's just like looking at all the chaos yeah. that just was created. God. I love that bottom yeah. panel right there. It's a very Mulder move. Yeah. To be like, just completely ignore all the shit you just fucked up, and be like, <laughs> "What are you talking about? We got to go do this thing." So we get into the flat. They're doing their this investigation. Again, just tons of detail work here. As yeah. they're going through all of his books and all of his effects. And I love when he opens the book. The all book, the yeah, little, yeah, yeah. yeah. The little, yeah. There's a little bird in there. Yeah. There's like a three-faced oh, thing. Oh, man. I think oh, we know what that is. What's a three-faced thing Let's, right uh, there in the book? Well, we'll save Interesting. that for later. Gray mentions uh, in the book there's references in the journal to Dipnon. He reads from it. In emanatizing the Hecation, it is vital that these elements are positioned in accordance with the designated crossroads. And Ms. Goat says, what's that got to do with the price of tea in China? Which is just what what's that got to do with anything? Yeah, this is a retort to an irrelevant suggestion. The facetious usage implies that the topic under discussion might as well be the price of tea in China for all of its relevance. This expression may have stemmed from... Depends on what kind of tea you're getting. Right, well, 
Um, I so. thought this was interesting. One explanation of the phrase's origin is that the 19th century price for tea in England was the highest when the first ship was newly harvested tea from the tightly controlled Chinese markets came in. So for ship owners, it was important to be as fast as possible back to England with the load. Otherwise, the cost of passage might not be recovered from the sale of the tea. Mm. Thus, there were real races where the sail ships managed to travel the whole distance from China to England in about 80 to 90 days. The difference in prices from the first load to the latter ones was so high that the original price which was paid for the tea was quite unimportant. So the price of tea in China was something that really didn't matter for the ship workers. They had to have the tea in England as fast as possible. There's also a rabbi phrase. What does Shimata have to do with Mount Sinai? Um, So that might have been an origin of the phrase. There's also a similar phrase in Polish. What does the Pyrnik have to do with the windmill? Pyrnik is like a pastry bread. Interesting. I don't really know what that one means. Right, but it's just, what does this have to do with that? What does it have to do with anything? That's interesting. I think anyway, cool. I had to go down that rabbit if hole. If you have a similar phrase that means, what's that got to do with anything? What's this got to do with that? Please let us know if you've got a, a phrase like that that you've heard. Uh, uh, we would love to hear that. And also, if you're looking for... The most excellent selection of Chinese tea, westchinateacompany.com. My friend Sohan and his partner Lindsay and a lot of other awesome people run that. They're based in Austin, Texas. Hell yeah. And they have just the best selection of Chinese tea. They really work hard at that. It's fantastic. Check it out. Yeah, some really rare teas Yeah, um, that you can't really get in the States. And they are very selective about it. They're not like, ah, just any old tea pile on. They, they, They test all of the teas themselves and they really are very strict about their their selection process so it's really and they are creating an excellent culture there as well of community they're very community-minded people and so you can find a lot of excellent things at their website and a lot of uh, make a lot of friends along the way so yeah it's good yeah stuff. thanks for mentioning them I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes if you want to check out the west china tea company yeah. for good stuff when Gray was talking about all these references, I was like, okay, now I got to go look this up. But no, Gray tells us in the next panel what all these things mean. So thank you, Gray, for doing yes, that. Yes, excellent. So he says, if I remember correctly, Daipnon was an evening meal used to refer to an offering to the goddess Hecate, traditionally left at the crossroads. And Hecateon is a household shrine to the goddess which would have been kept safely indoors. So now we have the connection to Hecate, right? Um, that's what was referenced earlier well, we when we all saw knew the three this faces, already. Right? As soon as we saw the triple goddess face, we already knew this yeah, was Hecate. Yeah. I don't know if you want to show them a picture of this thing we found. We 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 like to go into little like junk shops and antique oh yeah, yeah. shops and secondhand places and whatever. And so sometimes we find some pretty cool stuff. And we found this little thing that uh, it's this just this little thing. It's the triple goddess but it's like a salt bowl i guess and so it's just a little but it was just such a wild thing to find in this like little old lady antique store where they have you know it's like a consignment thing right right. whose was this like what where did this come from (laughs) how was this made so it's just very interesting to see like a literally a triple goddess thing right in the middle of like small town texas antique shop i was kind of like what the fuck yeah yeah i'll post a picture of that i'll post it alongside sure yeah I, I really liked that it was like um, a very kind of magical and kind of benign depiction. Usually like yeah. in these books, Hecate is portrayed as like this evil, ominous Which I'm thing. not a fan of. And yeah. just like Mark Tweedell talked about in our Devil You Know discussion, like 
Hecate is basically whatever you put in her. Yes. She's not really good or bad. Exactly. And I like that this the depiction end, was at the like, end, I've got the feeling, this was my interpretation at the very end, uh, like the end, capital E, where she was just like, really? You're still doing this? And that kind of made, like she was part of the beginning. It wasn't yeah, yeah. really the end, it was the beginning. And so I kind of got the impression all, that I had of her all along, which was like, no, yeah, she's, it's, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Instead of, she's, ah, she's evil. I was kind of like, you know, anyway. But no, this is good stuff. You know, you got the Mother Maiden Crone thing going on. Oh, yeah. So. Very good. It's good. Ms. Goad, she looks around and she finds under the bed a box of weird knives and stuff. All these <laughs> I weird I love a box trinkets. of weird yeah. knives and stuff. What do you think, Aubrey? You like a box of weird knives and stuff? Of course. Who doesn't? <laughs> like a die in there that just has a big three on it? Oh, yeah. There's like a three. I was wondering what some of these other things are. There's just like a weird metal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a. I like how like one of the knives is, is like you know genuinely placed in the lid, and the other two just chucked in They're there. Just chucked in there, yeah. <laughs> I I'm not sure, but I feel like I see a small like travel size weed pipe in there. Oh, is that what that is? Perhaps. Okay. Maybe your eyes are just seeing. You know what? what? You want. It might be. <laughs> but uh... that's where I'd keep mine. Just a box full of random crap. But then the police find next some bloody rags. That's no good. And so Ed Gray's like, ah, oh, this all makes sense. It's quite likely that Asquith used one of those blades to carry out the murders. In fact, I knew it. The daggers, the ritual sacrifice, the pattern of blood splatters on the wall, it all fits perfectly. And we get this vision that Ed, Ed Gray has of like Asquith going yeah. to town with these knives. We see the triple goddess in the background. And there's all like the uh, the ritual circle and all that kind of stuff with the candles and he just, like, bursts out of there with all the notes in the books. He's like, we got to get this down to Scotland Yard immediately. Yeah. I love how all the papers are flying behind yes. him and everything. The The previous page really solidified for me Kat Dennings would be perfect for this role. For Ms. Go. Didn't you I would cast add, her as Kat I? Dennings before? Oh, yeah, okay. Did, if yeah. I've already done that, I apologize for repeating myself. But I would absolutely no, <laughs> cast Kat Dennings. I think she would do a fantastic job. In this role, wait, she'd be perfect. Didn't didn't we find out like in the last comic that she's actually a little person? Oh yeah, oh, yeah, right. yeah. I probably apologize be, for that. It yeah. wouldn't be appropriate, they, probably. Yeah, sorry a, about that. A, no, probably want to get uh, someone who's a low person. To, absolutely, to I would. Out. Absolutely, I, would. I did forget about that detail. Thank you, Aubrey. I absolutely would definitely cast a little person. So we got to find a little person who. Uh, can have a super good energy. attitude. Yeah, good. Yeah, that good Cat Dennings energy. I'm sure. Absolutely, we could find an excellent actor to do this. Uh, this fantastic sharp wit and attitude of uh, of a Cat Dennings. There you go. Yeah, Cat Dennings energy. That's good. Sorry, I tased you. Over in New Scotland Yard. Remember, this is a metonym for the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police. The police are taking the items into the, from the apartment into custody. Gray mentions to Goad how he'd stake his reputation on Asquith being the guy. And as they're walking in, they see Asquith Her being face. escorted out. She's like, uh... I love this character. She's fantastic. And Gray's like, what the devil? Yeah. <laughs> With two exclamation points. I never tire of seeing Ed Gray just being so pissed off. <laughs> I, I love that he has no filter. This man has no filter. He will just yell at you. And Why is this man walking free? <laughs> He'll just fucking get in your face about it. He doesn't yeah. give a shit. 
there's a bit of a confrontation here and there's like this guy in the green suit is he like the lawyer for asquith or something like that he's kind of like They're defending very blase. him yeah about it and at one point mr silk jumps in and says the bloody rags were pig's blood after a mishap at the butcher's According to Asquith. How are you going to prove that without DNA testing? That's ridiculous. But additionally, Asquith has all these alibis, right? They said that on the evening of the killing, he was with Lady Evelyn Whitcomb Price, the Countess of Blakesbury. Say that three times fast. No, I won't. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) They show that he was already there. And the guy in the green, he's like, look, I, I know you have a history with this guy, but he can go free. I don't think he's a lawyer. I think he's just like a detective that right. works in Scotland. Oh, right. Okay. And I thought this was interesting. They also say that Gray has brought some other false suspects. The butcher, the marquee, the nanny, the dentist. Jeez. <laughs> but the marquee made me think of the marquee yeah. from uh, the Universal right. Machine. So I wonder if he's factored in there somewhere because we know that he's like across time, right? Because like... This guy's had enough of his shit though. Right, right. It's like, listen, Mulder, we, we, we've done this before. But I do want to mention here, um, you know, at one point, Gray says that the knives and the blood are significant, and he claims that the story about the blood is a cock and bull story. The 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, there was this place called Stony Stratford. This was an important stopping off point for mail and passenger coaches traveling between London and north of England. And there were two famous ho- uh, hotels there. The famous Cock Hotel, which has a rooster on its sign, and the infamous bull. Get it? Infamous bull? Because yeah. it's an in. And that one has a bull on its sign. The Cock and the Bull were it's pretty two. pretty good. Yeah, I know. Yeah, for back then, right? Yeah. The Cock and the Bull were two of the main coaching inns in the town, and the banter and rivalry between groups of travelers is said to have resulted in exaggerated and fanciful stories, which became known as Cock and Bull Stories. Okay, all right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I like I like tracing right. back. Where awesome. <laughs> That's good stuff. I love tracing back an idiom's uh, and, origin story. And apparently those two places are still there. So you can still stay there. That's apparently. fucking rad. Yeah. Oh, we should go there and have our own stories. <laughs> <laughs> the guy in the green tells Gray that he's had enough of Gray's insistence of an occult aspect to the case. Go back to chasing spooks, charlatans, and table knockers. And leave the police work to the professionals, he tells Gray. And I was kind of bummed out here that Mr. Silk also kind of turns his back on Gray, too. Well, he's upset because he's not eating his cake right now. Right. (laughs) He tells Ms. Goad to go back to the police station. Gray can look after himself. We'll call on you should we come across any actual cases which fall within your bailiwick, Silk says as he walks away. And Ms. Goad just looks back. I think she feels really bad, right? But Gray insists that he's correct. And we get this awesome final page to close the issue on. Uh, we got two ravens here, clearly ravens. And that's the Tower of London, yes, right? So yeah. we've been discussing the yes, Tower of London absolutely. for a while. And we got that blood red crescent moon. Yeah, and these two guys are hanging out. The goddess stirs uh, soon. Yeah. Oh, they're hanging out, being pals. Hanging out, uh, waiting for Hecate to come party with them. Yeah, yeah. No, again, I think about the cover to the trade, and I'm like, oh, what are the ra- are the ravens going to factor into this somehow? Very cool. Yeah, and then Joan and yeah. then Joan Cusack shows up, and she's like, "What's all this then?" <laughs> yeah, that's a good segue right into our issue two cover. Great cover here by Christopher Mitten and Michelle Madsen, and yeah, back when we met Sarah Jewell. 
in Rise of the Black Flame, she that was in the 1920s, and she hinted that she had been on some missions with Ed Gray. So it's only a matter of time, right, till we kind of got that in the Witchfinder series. If they're smart. Yeah, so very excited. She's excellent. Yeah, very excited to see this cover. I was like, oh, I think I know who that is. As we open after Gray's failed investigation of Asquith, he goes back to Whitechapel to continue there. And he's at this pub. It says Monk's Head. I thought that was pretty interesting. There is actually a Monk's Head pub in Kent, England. Not in Whitechapel, though. Uh, maybe they relocated after all the murders. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and again, just uh, the amount of detail back here in the bar, all the detail in the bottles and all the clothes, the patrons in the foreground and in the background, they just really give a lot of life to this scene. In the bar, no one wants to talk to Gray. A woman tells him that talking to him won't make anyone any safer, so no one bothers. And Gray's like, I'll have you know, I am in pursuit of a murderer. And, and he the, emphasizes murderer right. when he says that. <laughs> and the woman, she slams down her pint. I like how it says, bam. Yeah. <laughs> That's a problem in a nutshell. You're all fired up about catching a killer without seeming to give a damn about the poor women he's going about killing. I hear there's been a push by some of you upper crest types to just go ahead and arrest all the prostitutes on the streets as if that's any kind of solution. Just toss all the potential victims in jail and wash your hands of the whole mess. Joan Cusack giving him the business. <laughs> and Gray responds to this by basically saying, I know you're American by your accent, but that doesn't excuse how stupid your accusation is. Dang. <laughs> and well, she's like, un- unfounded <laughs> accusations. There you go. And she's like, don't mad at me, Buster. And yeah, I'm American and proud of it. All right. The name's Jewel, Sarah Jewel. <laughs> right. So I'm like, yeah, That's Sarah Jewel. Stuff. I'm glad she's awesome. back. And I love that she pushes back against Gray at first. Yeah, you know what good. I mean? She reminds we Oh, yeah. We didn't get any more honor grant, but I'll take Sarah Jewell in her stead, right? Oh, yeah. When uh, <laughs> when she popped up, I was like, oh, man, I love Sarah Jewell. Yeah. <laughs> That's good stuff. Through their conversation, we learned that Jewel has been following the murders as well. And she has her own suspect. She says all the signs point to a Dr. Robert Haldane. He was seen talking to every victim before they were killed, asking them all sorts of questions about their health and state of mind like he was doing a survey. Jewel had him investigated by the cops, but he had his own alibi. He was in Scotland on a family matter, but Jewel knows that he's mixed up in the murders somehow. And Gray starts giving his own theories, but she just ignores him and she goes over to talk to the girls. And so there's a sense throughout this scene that Sarah Jewel's watching over all the girls and keeping tabs on them to make sure they're safe. In this scene, she starts off looking for this girl, Henrietta, and then at the end of the scene, Henrietta appears, and she says she's moving into the new charity house, Proserpine Home. Back at Gray's place, he investigates Asquith's journals. But the devil is all this about hearths. Invocation of household deities? Oh, what a waste of time. I do want to point out in the journal, if we zoom in here, you see that circle? Yes, that's, that's a the, symbol that we know we've seen it before. That's the, it's got the three little shapes it on it. Does. So, yeah. It does. And we're going to see it again, I too. I just want to point that out. <laughs> yeah, right there. So Gray decides that he's just going to focus on Asquith himself since he can't figure out the journals. And this next page is so cool. It's like a Where's Waldo for Ed yeah, Gray stuff. as he follows Asquith throughout the town. And I was like, I was like, where is Ed Gray in this panel? Where is he in this <laughs> panel? But we see at one point Asquith is in the library. And look at his book. Yes. Yeah, interesting. There's that symbol again. Man. 
at least he tips the fruit person. That's nice, yeah. Right? <laughs> he can't be that much. terrible, I guess. Yeah. At the end, Gray observes Asquith going into the Dominion Club. He knows of the plays due to August Swain, a.k.a. Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson also <laughs> being a member Liam's of the Dominion Neeson. Club. Liam Neeson is my shiznit! But Gray knows Asquith is not of the social class to be with such company. To quote, he was a miner's son who scarcely had a pot to piss in, Gray oh, says. harsh. <laughs> Fucking harsh. So Gray's like, I'm going to go check out his finances. This is back in the day when you could just go to the bank and ask them about somebody <laughs> else's money. <laughs> and the banker's like, uh, oh, I can't really tell you any of that. But Gray's like, oh, well... Oh, after all, I have been very discreet about the business last summer with your nephew and the Icelandic necromancer, Dang. though I imagine it would be considerable interest to the newspapers to say nothing of the boy's parents. Oh, and then the banker's like, oh, okay, I'll do it. But like, what is that about? Like, Are they blackmailing <laughs> the guy? <laughs> I know, but it's like, this scene is just so out of nowhere and just bonkers. I was like, what is going on in this scene right here? We just get one little vignette into yeah. this incident that Gray is talking about, and it looks wild. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, I guess that's a tale for another that's, time. That's yeah, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna see more of that and understand what that means. So they go to check. And sure enough, the banker finds that since opening the account, large amounts of money are being deposited into the account from somewhere and some taken out. And Gray says he thinks he knows from where. He's back at the Dominion Club. Look at the work on this page nice. with the snow falling through the air. It's like they said, well, we were at the Dominion Club earlier, but let's do it again and make it harder on ourselves by putting all this snow and all this other stuff it's in really there. Nice. It's incredible the amount of detail on this page really blew me away here gray is taking things out he sees asquith get into a coach with another man and they don't show the other guy's face so i was like hmm is that supposed to be a mystery who's that other guy going to turn out to be gray is trying to figure out how to follow them when these three men approach him asking for money and gray waves them away saying he's on important business does this guy kind of look like burton frazier to anybody else Oh, the main guy? Yeah, he kind of looks a little bit like Brendan Fraser. Yeah, so the main guy of the, the guys asking for money, Brendan Fraser here, he says, well, if you're not one for charity, we'll just get down to our business, shall we? And they all flick out knives, the three right. of them. I love the three little panels. he's got a fucking straight razor. Oh, yeah. Business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's almost like very cinematic. Like you would see them do it one yeah, at a time. Oh, yeah. Like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Absolutely. You hear like a click in there somewhere, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A very satisfying click. And we get a truly amazing old Victorian row here. I love Ed Gray against the three attackers. Very cool. And Mitten does this effect with the impact where I almost thought something supernatural was going on. Uh, right. Because he punches the guy in the back and there's like a green something. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, is Ed Gray like doing magic or something? Yeah, some shit is he like doing that? like ghost magic yeah, or something? Yeah. I was like, but that's no. fucking awesome. We got but faked I think, out. I think it's just part of the, the dynamics of the scene. Psych. Yeah, because there's also there's also some like orange stuff around the guy's nose when he gets him in the, in the yeah. And just like Danielle said, it's so detailed and intricate, but it's also loose and just flowing yeah. everywhere, and um, just really amazing. I really loved this whole action scene. One of them manages to get Gray pretty good. We've talked about the blood splatter effects from Mitten pretty much every time we see his work, and they always stand out to me. Yeah. I like how eventually he's just like, you know what? If you know what's good for you, you're going to walk away right now. Right. Well, and they regroup. This. Yeah. The, the three attackers regroup like they're going to all go at him. And yeah, 
Gray's like pulls out this uh, this thing here, this item, and they're all like, "Huh, we're pretty confident that we can still take you on." And he's like, "I don't know, man. I've got like a magical talisman here <laughs> that's gonna fuck you up." And he says some magical shit, and it indefinitely fucks them up pretty bad psychologically he's got a very like psychedelic yeah magical talisman here let's talk about this let's take this apart because i like how he says beforehand just remember that i did warn you yeah. so he's like yeah. he knows that what he's gonna do is he doesn't want to do it he has reservations about it and these three friends here are like hey guys <laughs> hey guys we're just trying to hang out where are you going well he says abraxas this is a Greek word of mystic meaning in the system of Gnostic balisides, being there applied to the great archon. Archons are, in Gnosticism and religions closely related to it, the builders of the physical universe. The word Abraxas is found in Gnostic texts, such as the Holy Book of the Great Invisible Spirit, and also appears in the Greek magical papyri. It was engraved on certain antique gemstones, called on that account Abraxas stones, which were used as amulets or charms. The seven letters spelling its name may represent each of the seven classic planets. The word also may be related to abracadabra, although other explanations exist. So that was pretty cool. And just like Danielle said, she, Gray's magic unleashes these three monsters. The work by Mitten and Madsen is just outstanding in the depiction of these guys. These guys are great. They are fucking horrendous. It's good stuff. There is a comical element to it, but you you could also see how utterly terrifying it would be to have these like bug-eyed bird fish. See, for me, this is just like when my birds want snacks. They're like, (laughs) hey guys. The monster work is fantastic. They really just seem like they want to be pals and hang out. (laughs) But, of course, it's like, oh, you can't even believe it. They're so, it's so weird and mind-bending that you'll go mad because you can't even comprehend it. You can't even comprehend the madness, you know? And so it's very, uh, it's too much. It's too much for the human mind. And they run in terror. But it reminded me of, like, on our first encounter with Hellboy, he pulled out a a talisman out of his little Batman tool belt. And oh he yeah, was, he was like, "Ah, I've got a thing here for that." Yeah, yeah. So that kind of I like me that. Of that. Yeah. yeah, I like the parallel there. I thought that was interesting. No, I like that. Yeah, That's and Gray cool. is definitely the Hellboy of the 1800s, right? He's the yeah. greatest paranormal investigator. Okay, <laughs> I like that. No, that's good. Okay, that's cool. Oh, like Danielle said, I mean, the things are terrifying. And it it kind of drives the guys to lose their minds a little bit. But there is also a reference in the historical fiction because he says the talisman of St. Dimpna. St. Dimpna is a Christian saint honored in Catholic and Orthodox traditions. She's the patron saint of mental illness and anxiety. So I think like it's probably anxiety inducing or it kind of raises their, you know, I mean, it disrupts their mental health. Or something like that to see this stuff. And Gray, I like they put in this little detail where he says, I know from personal experience that the terror they induce is quite real. So he's also felt it himself. It's kind of like they make you get tased before you can use a taser. (laughs) You know what I mean? You got to get pepper sprayed yourself or whatever. And so like I think he understands something about that. Over at St. John of the Cross Police Hospital, we're back with Ed Gray's crew and Dr. Manley and Lewis are stitching Gray up after his encounter in the alley. Are they boyfriends? They're boyfriends. 
I don't know. Are they? Maybe they are. Yeah. Interesting. I like how they say, you know, Gray, a body typically has to be dead before it ends up on this table. Ah, and he's I like, got him. well, I have to thank you for keeping me amongst the living. Ah. Gray mentions Asquith again, and Mr. Silk is like, oh, you're yes. still barking up that tree. He's always eating cake. He's got his cake he, there, but he's still <laughs> mad. Say, yeah. He's so mad eating chocolate cake. How can you be? I mean, Edward showed up right when he probably sat down and got his oh, cake. Oh, there you like, go. God, that damn would, it. That would be annoying. Silk says that a body was found in the river, and that was probably the killer. He killed himself, mm. so everything's solved. Okay. And Gray's like, what? This is preposterous. You're going to say just because you found a drowning victim or whatever that the case is solved? And Manly and Lewis, they're like, hey, we're we're happy with it. We don't want to deal with this anymore. That's like the ultimate denial. They're like, oh, look, a dead person turned up. Uh, he was the murderer. Yeah. <laughs> we're so We're so done with this. Yeah, good thing you're leaving that police work to the professionals there, guys. <laughs> right. And one of the doctors says, too right. I'd assume they put everyone in Whitechapel behind bars and be done with it. And then Gray remembers what Sarah Jewell said. They're going to toss everyone in jail and wash their hands of the whole thing. And so what she said resonated with him. Oh, you know what I mean? Really, now, this is beyond the pale. Need I remind you that innocent lives are at risk? Or was this never about other than catching the killer? And any victim's past or future be damned. So now he's caring yeah. about the girls, too, because Sarah Jo kind of pointed out to him that he was ignoring that piece. I like that. That's good. He's got character growth yeah. every time. You know, every stuff. interaction, he learns a little bit more. And then the, they all start kind of ganging up on him because they're like, well, haven't you been pursuing Asquith for weeks? You haven't found anything. And he's like, well, uh, there is still well, a, a slight possibility chill? that he's a suspect. And they're like... Which suspect hasn't that you've brought forth hasn't been already been cleared by the police? And he's like, well, um, I know at least one investigator who thinks of another suspect, this guy, Dr. Haldine. And when they hear his name, they just all start laughing. And Silk is like, oh, Gray, this is too much now. You keep hanging around with all those scumbags and you don't hang around with honorable people Shall with I reputation. Cake? You don't know about Dr. Haldine. He's the best doctor ever. And he's a trusted associate of the Duke of Westminster. And he was lately recommended by the Queen herself to advise at the Countess of Blakesbury's new charitable mission. That makes me double suspicious of him, though. Right. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and Miss Goat is like, she mentions the Proserpine home. Okay, so there's a couple details that are coming together here. The Countess of Blakesbury, she's the one that's running this home. She was the same one that was the alibi for Asquith. Remember that? Yep, yep. So it's like, okay, she's involved in this somehow. And then the Prosperine home was where Henrietta was going to. That was referenced in that scene with Sarah Jewell. And Gray even goes, like, how do I know that name? He knows it because he heard it in the pub. See for yourself if it seems like the establishment that would hire a murderer. And Miss Goad's like, yeah, it's actually a really cool place. They help women learn job skills and improve their health and keep them out of prisons or whatever. Inspired by Dickens' Arena Cottage, if I'm not mistaken. And so this was a real place. It was located in Shepherd's Bush, London, founded with the idea of helping women who wanted to be helped. So during this time in Victorian London, they were cracking down on prostitutes. And so Dickens wanted to give, uh, create this place so to kind of get them off the streets and stuff like that. I do want to talk about, there are so many details back here. It looks in like the... there's like a help boy skull in this yeah what is cabinet that? here is that a there's hellboy a, skull there's a skull with shaved horns like hellboy that's interesting what is that yeah that's so is that another devil 
don't know. Or something, like, another why demon? Why would the horns be like that? I don't know. That's you see that, Aubrey? so interesting. I do. Is that just like a little Easter egg, like a little fun, like, ah, you, you got me. I don't know. I'd be interested what our listeners think of that. That's cute. I know. I I, I tend to Maybe the skull towards... is just wearing goggles. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Sure. <laughs> that's what Most they likely. To, that's yeah. what they used to say about Hellboy back I in know. the day. Yeah. I, I, I tend to skew towards it's the artist having a bit of fun. Like, ah, see if you can catch this No, one. I think it means something. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, man. There's so much time travel stuff with Hellboy, Dr. Carp's right? experiment. He went back in time, and then he was really not, he was really in present the whole time, but his blood was in the past covered in cobwebs, so who knows? Great little detail right there. Thank you for pointing that out. Gray's like, okay, fine. This guy seems like he's, you know, not the credible suspect, but that doesn't disprove my point. The killer is out there, and he's going to kill again, and I'm going to catch him before he does. We cut over to Prospertine home and we see, I guess this is Dr. Haldine and he's admitting somebody in and we reveal that it's Sarah Jewell. She's there at Prospertine home and she says, when my friend Henrietta told me about this place, Dr. Haldine, I said to myself, Sarah, you best get yourself down there and sign yourself up. I just know that this is where I'm meant to be. So Sarah Jewell is running like a, she's infiltrating yes. under the guise of, of course. Uh-huh. I'm a lost woman. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm and interested to thing. see what's going to happen. Here's the thing. It's the thing. Yeah, so, okay, let's talk about this last panel. I thought this was so interesting. On this last panel, we get a beautiful rendition by Mitten of the 1874 painting Prospertine by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. But it has all these added details. So, yeah. in the actual Prospertine painting, he does a really good job of recreating it here in his style. But it doesn't have the little diagrams and the lines and the right, circles. Right, of the little sigils and stuff. Yeah, and we do see that circle here again. This is Hecate's wheel. It is an ancient Greek symbol and an emblem of the moon goddess Hecate in her triple Yo. goddess aspect. Yo. The Chaldean oracle describes the symbol as a labyrinthine serpent representing rebirth and renewal surrounding oh, yeah. a central spiral. Yeah. And I did want to talk about Dante Gabriel Rossetti. He founded the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood in 1848 with William Hunt and John Everett Millay. Rossetti was later to be the main inspiration for the second generation of artists and writers influenced by the movement, most notably William Morris and Edward Byrne Jones. His work also influenced the European symbolists and was a major precursor to the aesthetic movement. Regarding the actual painting, Rossetti said in an 1877 letter, the figure represents Prospertine as an empress of Hades. After she was conveyed by Pluto to his realm and became his bride, her mother Ceres importuned Jupiter for her return to Earth, and he was prevailed on to consent to this, provided only he had not partaken of any of the fruits of Hades. Mm. It was found, however, that she had eaten one grain of a pomegranate, Come on, and man. this enchanted her to her new empire and destiny. She is represented in a gloomy corridor of her palace with the fatal fruit in her hand. Behind her form, some inlet suddenly opened and admitting for a moment the light of the upper world. She glances furtively towards it, immersed in thought. So that was Rossetti's actual interpretation of the painting himself. In some circles, eating pomegranate seeds indicates prosperity. Ah, and regarding Prospertina or Prospertine herself, she's an ancient Roman goddess whose cult, myths, and mysteries were combined from those of Liberia, an early Roman goddess of wine. 
In Greek, she is known as Persephone, mm-hmm. and her mother is Demeter, goddess of grain and agriculture. Just as Persephone was thought to be the daughter of Demeter, Romans made Persephina a daughter of Demeter's Roman equivalent, Ceres. Like Persephone, Persephina is associated with the underworld realm and its ruler. And along with her mother Ceres, with the springtime growth of crops and the cycle of life, death and rebirth or renewal. Her name is a Latinization of Persephone, perhaps influenced by the Latin prosper, to emerge or to creep forth, with respect to the growing of grain. Her core myths, her forcible abduction by the god of the underworld, her mother's search for her, and her eventual but temporary restoration to the world above are the subject of works in Roman and later art and literature. Mm -hmm. And I will post a side-by-side comparison of the Rossetti painting and this Christopher Mitten version. I thought it was so remarkable, and I was so proud of myself for going, I recognize that. That's an actual painting. I've I've seen this before. (laughs) So very cool. Um, Awesome. It's always fun. I love all that. And yeah, I'm excited to see. Uh, I think I feel like they've set up so much in these first two issues. Yeah, like a lot stuff. of the like a lot of the other Witchfinder stories we've read. I feel like the last three issues are just going to be like action packed yeah. and it's going to just roll us through the story. So I'm really excited. And um, man, this is the last Witchfinder we have. We're almost oh, done geez. with Witchfinder. So, geez, you know, I almost don't want it to oh, be wow. over, but I'm really enjoying this series. And I think it's so cool that. If this is the last one, I don't know if they're going to do more or not. We have an awesome team like Mitten and Madsen doing their magic on this one. So, very cool. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's good stuff. It's the, it's the kind of excellent content we've come to expect from the Witchfinder series. And uh, it's good stuff. Yeah. It's interesting to see how in these first two issues, everything is not going right for Ed. Yeah. And usually things are usually kind of going his way. He's got a good hunch and he's got everything going, you know, everything starts right. lining up. He's but, the I mean, boss. With, but with this, it's like, you know, he's turning in all these subjects that are just getting let go because they're not the right person. He's like, and he's focusing in on dead ends. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah. it's, it's really kind of curious to see this kind of flipped side to the stories that we normally see and i'm really enjoying it and of course the art is stellar i mean it's just amazing and that's a good uh, point though i like a bit of an underdog i do i couldn't quite put my finger on it but i think you really eloquently expressed that just then. yeah so that's, that's a really good point aubrey thank you for the observation i'm, I'm really good. glad you mentioned that too because they keep telling gray like well, you keep pursuing you're obsessed with this guy he has nothing to do with it and I almost heard to think it too. Mm-hmm. Like, is Ed Gray? Like, obviously, I know that he's probably on the right hunch, and this guy is really going to turn out to be part of it or something. But like, there is where you see, you do see the driven, demented, one-sided. I keep comparing him to Mulder, but like, I can't. Yes, you know exactly. what I'm saying? Like, you it's see very... the Mulder side of Ed Gray in this book, where yeah. he will not give up, and it almost seems like there is no evidence to support what he's trying to do, but he won't like, stop. Like, you no, know what I, I mean? Won't. And so, and just like Aubrey said, it started with Broom and Grant leaving. Yeah. Where he was like, oh, yeah. you're going to come help me. And they're like, actually, we're not. And I was like, yeah, you're right, Aubrey. From there on, it's just been like, he's been striking out all along. So, yeah, yeah I'm interested to see what's going to happen in the next three issues. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. I'm also interested to see if the Jack the Ripper, because this is the Jack the Ripper murders we're talking about, right? Oh, I didn't even catch that, Aubrey. You're right. They're fictionalizing, they're historical fictionalizing Jack the Ripper. Aubrey, I'm so stupid. You're absolutely right. Yeah, man. Did you you catch that? Yeah, I thought that that was the whole, 
I mean, thought that's why we didn't even mention it, because it didn't even need to be mentioned. Oh, man. Aubrey, I'm so glad you're a co-host Are you? Did you show. seriously not catch that? No, I didn't. I, I should have totally I thought we that. were glossing over it because it was so obvious. That's great. No, okay. That's well, good stuff. Very good. Well, I was thinking because, like, um, maybe he's on the wrong track because maybe they're just not going to reveal who Jack the Ripper is, and it's just going to be an unconnected set of murders that's happening at the same time that these guys are trying to bring hecate back right oh wow and aren't there theories that the jack the ripper murders were multiple people or something like that and there's theories uh, there's there's a million theories there's like it involves the crown it involves doctors it involves immigrants it involves all sorts of crazy things oh you're okay i'm looking here aubrey the murders took place in Whitechapel and spitalfields which were the cities that this is taking place in when I got to the end of this issue, I was just like, wait, this is the third, the second issue. I'm done. I wanted to keep going. Yes, <laughs> yes. Wow. Now I really can't wait to see how this is going to wrap up. I'm going to have to read up on Jack the Ripper for our next episode to be more in the historical fiction of that. But um, excellent. I'm so glad that was brought up. Excellent job, Aubrey. I, I saw this movie when I was a kid, time after time, that involved Jack the Ripper, and I've been kind of i don't like jack the ripper obviously but i'm intrigued by this the story oh my god so there are some very gruesome fyi uh not safe for work uh gruesome pictures of the crime scenes and they look like the ones that we saw in the comic yeah they do wow interesting all right so excited so excited now even more excited than i was to get to the end of this um i'm excited to listen to all your feedback on the episode and make sure to support that Kickstarter for Drawing Monsters, the Mike Mignola documentary. Shout out to Kevin Hanna and Jim Demonakos for hanging out with us again. And let's make sure we get as much into the project as possible so we can get more stuff, you know, yeah. and get, make the film as awesome as we can. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I'm going to say uh, thank you, Kevin and Jim, for being on last week. Book club fun. members. Book yes. club members. members. <laughs> All right, guys, that was a fun episode. It was kind of great to see Ed get turned on his head going up against the Ripper. I want to hear what you think. You can send us a hey, you damn guys at Club at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. You can also find all of our links on our Facebook About section and our Podbean website. And there's also the link tree on Instagram and Twitter. As always, a special thank you to the Side Street Steppers for their wonderful little listener feedback music. And also thank you to Andrew Adair for the Witchfinder theme. Witchfinder. Beautiful. Love it. And a thank you to uh, Mark for helping John with the reading order. John for doing all the wonderful editing. Danielle for your wonderful insight. And, <laughs> and thank you to all the listeners for all of your wonderful feedback. Next week, we are continuing Witchfinder, The Reign of Darkness, issues three through five. So you know what to do. Keep that trade out. Keep those issues on your coffee table. Uh, Pull up a chair and a nice cup of tea and uh, join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm Professor Hinklepink. (laughs) And I'm already level saying, that's enough dancing, boys. Let's finish him off. Great, awesome. That's not my particular hinkle pink.